It's podcasting time! This is Just Another Jerk, Dispatches from Japan. I am, of course, Jonathan Isaacson. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast wherever it is you get your podcasts. Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, maybe Pandora for those of you in the U.S. Somewhere else, I don't know. While you're there, please remember to rate the show, and if you've got a little extra time, give it a review. So, finally, I have a little bit of time to do a proper episode. Um, I've done some research a little bit, some translation, to bring you another episode of the occasional series, Everything You Never Wanted to Know About Japanese History. And we are dipping our toes into the true crime pool for the very first time. Ooh, exciting, or whatever. So you've seen the title of the episode, It's Not Any Secret, but today we are talking about a heist. In fact, it is the biggest heist ever pulled off in Japan, especially if you adjust for inflation, as well as kind of the rise in the standard of living. So let's go. Let's hop into the Wayback Machine. Well, okay, maybe it's not that way back, just a little bit back in time. To the late 1960s. And let's get started. It's Friday, December 6th, 1968, in suburban Tokyo. The manager of the Kokubunji branch of the Nippon Trust Bank receives a threatening letter. As if out of a movie, the characters, the letters on the page, are cut from magazines and pasted onto the paper. The sender of the letter demands that a female bank clerk bring 300 million yen to a designated drop-off spot by 5 p.m. the next day. If not, the sender and maybe his accomplices would bomb the branch manager's house. Of course, the manager contacts the police, and the police dispatch 50 men to the area. But the sender of the threatening letter never appears. The manager's house is untouched. Earlier in the year, the Tama Agricultural Cooperative had received similar threatening letters and phone calls, but nothing had come of those. So employees at the bank were probably a little shaken and worried, but probably not panicked. The weekend comes and goes, and nothing particularly suspicious happens. The same goes for the following Monday. On the morning of Tuesday, December 10th, officials from the bank load up three reinforced hardened aluminum alloy cases with 294 million yen into a car. The car is a Nissan Cedric, to be exact. They are preparing to take the money to the Toshiba factory in the neighboring city of Fuchu. The money is for the factory workers' year-end bonuses, which is a very common practice in Japan. It was then, it is today. Normally for these trips, the bank only sends two employees, but due to the threatening letter four days prior, the number is doubled. The four men make the trip to Fuchu, which is only about five kilometers away, and nothing seems amiss. Until they are driving along Gakuendori, a road that passes just to the north of the Fuchu prison, and is very, very close to the Toshiba factory. As the four men were driving along Gakuendori, a police officer on a motorcycle waves at them to stop. 
Now, police motorcycles in Japan are popularly known as shirobai. Shiro means white, and bai is short for bike, as in motorbike. While the original motorcycle police in Japan rode blue bikes, since 1936, police motorcycles in Japan have all been white. And since the early 1960s, they mostly were a model known as the Honda Dream. So, this young police officer on his shirobai tells the car from the bank to stop. The driver of the car stops and rolls down his window. He asks the officer, What's wrong? The officer tells the men in the car, The chief of the Sugamo precinct sent an emergency message. The house of the manager of your bank's Sugamo branch has been blown up. We also have reason to believe that this car has been rigged with dynamite. Please allow me to search under the car. Given the threatening letter four days prior, the men in the car assented to the search, and the officer climbed under the car to search for the dynamite. As he was searching, smoke and flames began to appear from under the car. The officer quickly scrambles out from under the car and yells at the men, It's going to explode! Quick, get away from the car! The men quickly exit the car and run towards the sidewalk along the wall of Fuchu Prison. One of the bank employees will later say that he thought the officer was a very brave man because the officer jumps in the car and moves it away from bystanders, attempting to put some distance between the people and the dynamite. Or at least that's what the men in the car think he was doing. The officer never stops driving. As the road flare that has been providing the pyrotechnics burned itself out, it starts to become clear what has just happened. And once the men from the bank look at the officer's motorcycle, there's no doubt that they have been duped. The supposed Shirobai, it's not a Honda Dream. It's a Yamaha, with a cookie tin and a stolen megaphone strapped on, all painted white to give the impression, at least at a distance, of being an actual police vehicle. The fake Shirobai was even dragging a tarp that had been used to cover it to keep it secret. To this day, the man who pulled off this most audacious heist has never been arrested, found, or identified. Even though the criminal statute of limitations and the civil statute of limitations have both passed, no one has ever come forward in this case. So that's the event itself. Let's talk about some of the evidence and the investigation. Ultimately, this investigation was one of the largest in the history of Japan. The suspect list reached an absurd 110,000 people. Something like 170,000 actual police officers had at least some part in the investigation, but I have to imagine that a lot of the people were just putting up the wanted posters, things like that, going knocking on doors, very simple things like that, not actually doing the investigative parts. But still, That's a lot of manpower. Ultimately, the police investigation continued for seven years, the statute of limitations on criminal cases. 
And kind of ridiculously, the total price tag for the seven years of investigation, 900 million yen. That's more than three times the amount of money that was stolen. Now, as I mentioned, this was the biggest heist ever pulled in Japan. And when adjusted for inflation, the total would be about a billion yen. Measured another way, not just based strictly on inflation of the economy as a whole, but based on kind of the starting average salaries at the time, right then compared to now, the heist would be worth something like 5 to 10 billion yen. So it was a huge heist. And so I'm sure it made sense to use that much manpower and that many resources to try to catch the perpetrator. But the police never did find the perpetrator. So in the end, the 900 million yen, it was ultimately a bit of a waste. So what did the investigation revolve around? Why did the police have such a hard time of it in this case? So the obvious place to start is with the actual site of the heist. The place where the fake police officer drove off with the loot, leaving behind a fake police motorcycle and a spent road flare. Now the bike in question was a Yamaha Sport 350R1 type motorcycle. At that time, Yamaha was not supplying motorcycles for the cops. And as it so happened, this particular model of bike was not sold in white. It was actually a blue bike, painted. And once everyone was able to get a better look, it was pretty obvious that it was a fairly crude paint job. But it was obviously good enough that in the scenario that the perpetrator created, it convinced the four men in the car. Real Shirobai motorcycles, police motorcycles, were Honda Dream CP77 Supersports. Now, I'm sure to a real motorcycle person, the two bikes are distinct. But to someone like me who knows more or less nothing about motorcycles, the two bikes are similar enough in their shape that most people, if we're not motorcycle people, you wouldn't notice a glaring difference, you know, if you just glanced only quickly. Besides the bike itself and its rough paint job, the perpetrator, or his confederates, and we'll talk about that possibility later, had made some modifications to make the fake a little bit less easy to spot immediately. One thing added to the bike was a cookie tin, which was also painted white. The tin was attached at the very end, the very back of the seat. It was put there to look like the little box that the police bikes had at the time, kind of like a glove box on a bike, used for holding the bike's registration, as well as for papers for issuing citations and the like, you know, police things. The cookie tin was from Meiji, which is one of the largest cookie makers in the country, so the tin was really no help in narrowing down the search, though it led some people to believe that maybe the criminal had a sweet tooth, probably grasping at straws there, but it's understandable. I mean, the case was never solved, so any straw worth grasping at, right? Also painted white and attached to the bike was a loudspeaker, a megaphone. Again, this is something that at least some of the police bikes at the time had attached to them. You know, it was used for making traffic stops, telling a car to stop, pull over, um, used for directing the public 
at an accident site or whatever. Now, the serial number on the loudspeaker led investigators to a factory in the nearby city of Higashi uh, Murayama. The perpetrator had apparently stolen the loudspeaker from the factory at some point prior. It was not determined exactly when, but it was definitely stolen from that factory. Also found at the initial site were some scraps of newspaper, the road flare, a page from a magazine, and some magnets that were used to attach the flare to the underside of the car. Investigators were eventually able to figure out the most likely place that the newspaper was sold, but by that time it was two years after the fact, 1970. So any hopes of determining who had bought that particular paper were, well, hopeless. The magazine page, which had been wrapped around the flare to help attach it to the, with the magnets under the bottom of the car, it was a circuit diagram from an electronics magazine. The last notable piece of evidence from the first site, well, the last, I guess it was two pieces. It was a tarp that was used to cover the bike, which, if you'll recall, had gotten dragged along by the bike. So when they uncovered, when the, when the perpetrator uncovered his bike, the tarp got stuck. And it got dragged along, and wrapped up in the tarp was a hat. Now, police might have been able to get some sweat samples from the hat, Maybe even get some useful information like blood types or things like that. I don't understand exactly how it worked in 1968, but that's what it said when I was reading. But, for some reason, maybe the police felt the case was going to be a very simple one, open and shut case. Some of the officers took turns putting the hat on. Thus ruining any hope of getting useful information from the hat, from sweat stains and things like that. Not the best crime scene discipline there. They were able to at least locate the store that likely sold the hat. Uh, it was a small hat shop in Tachikawa, which is another suburban city in this area of western uh, Tokyo. But that was all the information they could get. Now there are still three more locations related to the crime, and we'll get there. But this is a good place to stop for a moment and talk about the evidence as a whole. In all, there were something like 120 pieces of evidence that the police collected. Some of these, these pieces were presumably collected with more care than the hat. And this large number of items probably initially contributed to the police's confidence that they would solve the crime quickly and easily. However, it's quite possible that the perpetrator left some of these things as red herrings, things to intentionally throw the investigators off. It's also worth noting that the majority of the items were things that were mass-produced. The cookie tin? More than 30,000 of that particular type had been produced. Those specific magnets used? More than 40,000. The road flare? 4,000 had been sold nationwide. Now, Japan was still fairly new to the world of mass-produced consumer goods. I mean, obviously, mass-produced goods had been around in Japan for a few minutes, but their widespread adoption was still only a few decades old. And in some ways, it seems as though the perpetrator of the heist 
was taking full advantage of the anonymity that could be found in these cookie-cutter items. So while the police's confidence may have made sense prior to World War II, when 120 items would almost certainly lead to some easily tracked trail straight to the, the perpetrator, by 1968, this was clearly not the case. So let's look at some of the other evidence. So the second site of the investigation was less than two kilometers from the site of the actual heist. It was near an ancient temple site that the perpetrator ditched the Nissan Cedric. Now this was the car, remember, that the bank employees had been in, the one with the 294 million yen. Witnesses would later say that earlier in the day, they had seen a dark blue Toyota Corolla. Investigators believe that the thief drove the Cedric a short distance to his waiting Corolla and changed cars. When the Cedric was found, of course, the money and the cases were gone. The next investigation site was about a kilometer from the site of the heist. There was an empty lot where the perpetrator had set up his fake police bike, covered so as not to stand out quite so much. Eyewitnesses later said that they remembered seeing a covered bike and they could hear the engine running at a time that was just a little bit prior to the heist. Presumably the thief was waiting, watching for the car from the bank to pass by when he would throw off the cover of his bike and set the whole plan in motion. While he was waiting, he was wearing a raincoat, which he pulled off in a hurry, leaving it in the empty lot, inside out. Just a fun fact here, the Japanese term for pulling off clothes in a hurry and leaving them inside out, at least at the time, was kairunugi, frog undressing. So anyway, the raincoat was made at least 10 years earlier. The company that made it had gone out of business in 1958, so that was a dead end. And this the raincoat was also another case of bad field practices by the police. The raincoat was not handled carefully when they first found it. It was also in this field that another Toyota Corolla makes its appearance. This one was a green one. The car was discovered with a half-open door and an open window and the windshield wipers still running. The car had been stolen either on November 30th or December 1st, probably overnight. So what it sounds like is that the fake policeman set up his fake Shirobai engine running, covered in the field, in the lot, and he sat in his car, his stolen car, with his raincoat on to cover his police uniform, possibly wearing the hat found at the scene of the heist. He was waiting for the car from the bank to pass by. And when he saw it, he jumped out of the car, took off his raincoat in a hurry, leaving the sleeves inside out, pulled the cover off the bike, took off his hat, put on the motorcycle helmet, threw his hat on the ground where it got tangled up in the tarp, and then the tarp and the hat got dragged behind the bike as he chased down the car from the bank. Obviously, I'm not making any great discoveries here. This is pretty 
this is obviously what happened in that field. But yeah, that was what was found initially at the three investigation sites. About four months later, a fourth investigation site became the center of attention. It was an empty lot near a block of public housing in another nearby city, Kogane. This time it was about five kilometers from the heist location. And the dark blue Corolla, the Corolla that the thief switched into from the Cedric, the dark blue Corolla was discovered in this lot. The car was covered with a tarp, so it wasn't as easy to spot as might have been the case otherwise. And I'm thinking that covering vehicles with tarps at this time in Japan must have been very common. I mean, otherwise a car covered with a tarp, when people are looking for a car used in the country's biggest heist, might seem pretty obvious otherwise. With the cooperation of the Self-Defense Force, Japan's military, police used satellite imagery to establish that the car had been in the lot, covered since the day after the heist. So that's another oops by the cops, I think, here. In the car were the aluminum money cases. Empty, of course. There was also dried mud on the cases, and an analysis of the soil showed that it came from the site where the Cedric, the bank official's car, had been abandoned. Besides the stolen blue Corolla, because yes, that one was of course stolen, four other stolen vehicles were found in the parking lot in Kogane. There was a Honda Dream motorcycle, and if you'll recall, that particular make and model matches the bikes used by police at the time. It had been stolen in early November, but the actual owner of the bike noted that it had an engine knock problem. It's theorized that the thief stole the Honda bike, gave it a test run, and noticed the knocking and gave up on the bike, opting to steal a Yamaha, the bike he actually used in the crime. There were also three stolen cars in the lot. And oh yeah, I forgot to mention it with a Honda motorcycle, but all of these vehicles were covered with tarps. Again, that's why I say it must have been much more common in the late 60s. So, there were a couple of Nissan Skylines and a Nissan Bluebird in the parking lot. Inside one of the Skylines, police found magazines and other things connected to gambling, horse racing specifically. The owner of this Skyline apparently wasn't into horse racing, so it's thought that these things came from the thief or thieves. Let's talk about that possibility, or if you ask me, likelihood. So many vehicles and so many moving parts, you probably needed at least two people to pull this off. So in the other skyline, not the skyline with the gambling magazine, but the other skyline, police found an earring. The owner of the car said it wasn't anyone in his family's. So again, it was likely from the thief. This led to some speculation that there maybe was a woman involved in the plot, or maybe, you know, the thief took his girl out on a date in a stolen car, but, you know, who knows. But it is, yeah, it, it's some evidence that there were more than one person involved. There's also one more bit of evidence that points to at least two people in on the plot at some level. 
Now, an expert looked at the knots that were used to tie down the tarps on the cars. Presuming that all four cars found in the lot were connected to the heist, at least one of the tarps had a different knot, and it was different enough that the expert believed that it was tied by a different person. And again, I tend to think personally that there were at least two people in on this plan. Even the actual heist, you know, because three of those cars, the, the Skylines and the Bluebird were not used in the heist at all, nor was the Honda Dream. But in the actual heist, there were three vehicles besides the banker's Cedric, right? You had your two Corollas, the Corolla you, the thief waited in, the Corolla he jumped into after the Cedric, and the fake Shidobai. If I had to guess, my I would say the getaway car after the fake police officer ditched the Cedric, maybe there was a driver waiting to go as soon as the fake cop got there. I mean, there's some eyewitness testimony saying there wasn't, but it's eyewitness testimony, so that's dubious sometimes. But it to me, it seems likely that there were at least two people in on this. And, I mean, there's just the logistics of getting all the vehicles into position, ready to go when the bankers drive by. Like I say, though, the most common belief, at, at least at the time, is that one person did this. I mean, one person could theoretically pull this off by themselves, but to me, that doesn't seem very likely. Maybe the actual robbery itself happened but with one person, but the preparation, I think, probably had help. He probably had help. As I said, the case has never been solved. By 1975, the thief could no longer be charged in a criminal case, and by 1988, he was off the hook in civil court. But that isn't to say the police didn't have their suspects. As I mentioned earlier, the suspect list ballooned at one point to 110,000 people. And that's what we'll talk about next time. Who were some of the suspects? What happened to them? So we'll save that for next time, so please make sure you tune in for part two. And please remember to subscribe, rate, review the podcast, wherever it is that you cast your pods. The podcast is available on most major platforms, so please let me know if it's not on your favorite platform, and I will look into getting it there. You can find the Twitter for this podcast at JustAnotherCast. Go there, get Japanese history nuggets every day. And you can, of course, email the show at JustAnotherJerkPodcast at gmail.com. That's all for me. I'm Jonathan Isaacson, and I am out. Peace.